following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. We're going on in our look in the book of Luke, and the verses we're looking at this morning are from chapter 12, verses 49 to 56. Um, just to let you know, we're going to take sort of revisit a certain part of the passage I preached last week, and then move on to the following verses that we find in our scripture reading for this morning. And uh, the title of the message is Setting the World on Fire. And it's, you know, when you hear that imagery, uh, some, probably something comes to mind, but um, the way that Jesus is using it in this passage is a bit different. And so we'll take a look at that together. It reads, starting in verse 49, uh, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Let's pray. God, at times we, we find difficult words to both understand and to accept found in your scriptures and a passage like this this morning seems to fall into that category so we ask for your grace to give us understanding give us humility that we would receive your truth um, humbly and wholeheartedly and allow our lives to be changed by that truth through faith so we pray these things in christ's name amen if you were with us last Sunday, um, the topic was on the return of Jesus Christ, what's theologically known as the second coming. The first coming happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came to the earth as a man so that he could die on the cross for our sins. But even during his first visit, he was already talking about his second visit when he would return again to the earth to claim all those who are his and bring about the final end of history. And so we saw that teaching laid out through these three short parables that happened, one right after the other. And in the introduction of last week's message, I talked about how there's certain camps in the church that tend to obsess over these teachings on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, and usually those in that camp tend to fall into this sort of unhealthy pattern of trying to interpret to decipher these prophecies about the end times and try to figure out how they relate to current events. And a lot of that in the end of it is to try to figure out 
the exact date when Jesus is going to come back. Actually, while I was an undergrad student at the University of Illinois, this guy named Edgar uh, Wisnant wrote this uh, book. He had taken a look at all of the relevant prophecies. And in uh, the 80s, he published this book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. This book became a bestseller. And it created quite an uproar in the church as everyone tried to figure out if there was any merit to the claims that this guy made because some of his points were actually rather convincing as he calculated all of these numbers and figured it out. And he narrowed it down, in fact, to a three-day period between September 11th to September 13th, 1988. Even in the campus ministry that I was attending at the time, the student body was really divided between those who maybe thought that there was some truth to this and those who weren't. And even as I was reflecting on this as a young college student, I actually found it very hard to get motivated to study very hard because if the rapture was going to happen before the school year closed, there wasn't a lot of motivation to study very hard. I mean, what was the point? The world's going to come to an end. What does it matter what grade I get in, in biology? Um, well, as you can guess, September 1988 came and passed. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, Wiseland published a follow-up the next year uh, called On Borrowed Time, which listed 89 reasons why Jesus was going to come back in 1989. And then, of course, 89 came and went. And Wiseland ended up adjusting the date of the rapture over and over again. It was then 2003, then 2000, uh, I mean 93, then 94. And he never quite learned his lesson. He just kept adjusting the date all the way until his death in 2001. Um, there, there is this danger that we can see these passages about the return of Jesus uh, like they're like these uh, divine riddles that we have to solve. It's like a puzzle book. And we have to sort of figure out when these things are going to happen. And as I said in last week's message, that's not the reason why God puts these passages about his return in the Bible. In last week's message, I also pointed out that there's also another problem that we have in our church, which is that many Christians, frankly, never think about the return of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't factor in the way we live our lives at all. Um, well, why are these passages about his return in the Bible? In fact, as I argued last week, they're everywhere in the, in the New Testament. The argument is that God has placed these passages in there to teach us how to get ready for that return. What we need to do to prepare ourselves for that day when Jesus comes back. In essence, the argument is that there's basically two ways that we can gain perspective for our present lives. One way that we can gain perspective is by looking to the past. When we look backward at history, we can learn from our mistakes, for example, so that we don't end up repeating them in the present day. When we look backward at the past, we can also remember God's works on our behalf, the things that he did for us. And that can strengthen our faith so that we could trust him for the present struggles that we're going through today. 
But there's also another way that we can gain perspective for our present lives, and that is looking to the future. In other words, we can look ahead, and by reminding ourselves of what lies in our future, it helps us to get ready now. What do I do now in light of the fact that that's the direction that I'm headed in my life? Um, I got married in 1994. Um, The year before I got married, I was a third-year medical school student living down in Peoria, Illinois. And... That year, um, I wanted to look the best I could with the limited things that God had given me uh, for my wedding. And so, believe it or not, uh, almost at least three times a week during that year, almost every week, I ran anywhere from three to five miles a day. Now, you got to understand how amazing that is because I absolutely hate running, okay? I, I mean, I would rather get a root canal than run. But I, I ran and I ran and I ran because I wanted to be fit for my wedding. I actually tried out different haircuts at my barber, okay? I, I got my haircut by the owner of the Korean grocery store in the back store stock room, okay? That's where I got my haircut in those days because I just cared so little about my appearance. But thinking about my coming wedding... I would actually, could you try this? And then for like that whole year, I tried on different haircuts until I settled on the haircut that I wanted for my wedding. Um, And it wasn't just about the wedding. It was also about the marriage. And so I meticulously organized my finances. Uh, As a single person, I didn't really care. But suddenly I thought, man, we're going to be married in less than a year. And so... I didn't want us to get deep into debt as a newlywed couple. So I totally reorganized our finances to make sure that we could live within our means as a family and not get into debt. Uh, Up to that point in my life, I literally think I rented the first apartment that I visited (laughs) in all my apartment searches from college days. But suddenly, I thought, I'm going to bring my bride home into this house. And so for weeks... I visited apartment after apartment in the Peoria area until I found the exact apartment that I thought Betty would like. And then finally signed the lease. And then some months later, brought her to that house. You know, in essence, what I'm saying is, I, for that entire year, my focus was the wedding. And my life revolved around the anticipation of that wedding day and getting everything in order, in order to walk into married life, heads up, and the best that I can. I think this is the sentiment that Jesus is communicating to his disciples when he talks about his return. Jesus commands us to live our present lives informed by the hope of his return. I am coming one day. One day I will return. And so be ready for the day When I come back, organize your life around that reality. 
This Bible scholar Kenneth Bailey offers us some helpful insights into the parable that we looked at last week when Jesus emphasized this point. In Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 36, it says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he knocks. Now, most English translations will use this word waiting. Wait for your master. But I think something is lost in the English when we just say wait because waiting can be a very passive thing, can't it? When we say wait, it's like waiting for the bus. And that doesn't really capture what Jesus meant. Probably a a better way to translate it would be expecting, right? When you say expect something, it carries a different tone, a different attitude, doesn't it? Saying, uh, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are expecting their master to come home. In other words, that waiting involves certain activities, certain things that you need to do before the return actually occurs. Um, There's also another subtle word choice here to bring to your attention that, just for the time's sake, I didn't really go into in last week's sermon. Uh, If you look closely, it also says, who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding. Now, that's actually not what the original uh, Greek text says. But it's just a way to try to convey the message that the master has returned in the English language. Um, If you look at the literal wording that's used by Jesus in that time, though, it's a little bit different. Because a better way to translate it would be uh, that the master didn't just return home, but he withdrew from the wedding Or he broke away from the wedding. That's what it actually literally says, is that he broke away from the wedding. And when you look at it this way, the implication is that the master left the party early, before the wedding was even done. He left the reception prematurely. He he withdrew from it. Um, Now, the question is this. Why would Jesus add that detail to the story? Okay? Because if the wedding is over, then it's obvious why the master returned home. Because the party's done. Go home. Everyone's going home. Um, does, G- does this master depart from the party early, basically to play a game of gotcha with his, his servants and to catch them, try to catch them when they're not on their guard? Well, By what happens next in the story, I think it becomes very clear that that wasn't the motive of this master as to why he left the wedding party early. What happens is that the master returns back to his house and he finds his servants faithfully waiting for his return. And he is filled with such joy and affection for them that he does something that would defy belief especially to Jesus' original Jewish audience. He behaves in a way that no Middle Eastern nobleman or landowner or slave master, frankly, would ever do. It says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. 
Now, first of all, most translations, again, in the English, use this word servants to describe those that are waiting for the master's return. But the reason why we use the term servants in English is because of the negative history of slavery that we have in America. And the truth is that it's much more accurately translated as slaves. Slaves. So if we were to really read it properly, it would say, Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds awake when he comes. Now what's striking about that is simply the fact that the master is dealing with the slaves directly. Because to understand a little bit about the history and the culture, for a nobleman like this master, there was a whole pecking order, a whole hierarchy for the servants in an estate like his. Okay? So you had the master, and then underneath him was his wife and the children. And then there was someone he called the steward. And under him, someone called the foreman. And under him, uh, the, all the permanently hired house staff. And then under him, would, under them would be the day laborers that were hired temporarily. It's sort of like the temp help. And then at the bottom rung of that ladder were the slaves. These were the nobodies. These were the lowest of the low. These were the ones that washed your stinking feet when you came in from a muddy day out on the town. Okay? These were the lowest of the low. And so even the fact that this master comes to directly deal with the slaves was saying a lot. He was not acting like a typical slave master. But what he does next is utterly unthinkable. It verges on the absurd to the point where you could almost imagine Jesus' original audience just going, what is the story? I don't even understand it anymore. Because what happens is, filled with the joy of the faithfulness of his servants, he uh, it's, you know, the term in those days was called gird your loins, you know, because, you know, the men used to wear these flowing long robes, which look very ornate and beautiful, but very impractical to do any real work. So they would tuck it in like a diaper into their belt like this, and that's called girding up your loins. And what it says is this master girds his loins, in essence, putting on the dress of a slave, and then he seats his slaves, the lowest of the low the nobodies in his estate, at his own dining table so that he could serve them. Um, You've got to understand how utterly unthinkable and unlikely a scenario this is that Jesus portrays. To understand how utterly culturally inappropriate this action of the master is, think about the way that Peter, the apostle Peter, acted when Jesus tried to wash his feet. Remember that? In John chapter 13, verse 8, this was Peter's reaction. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet, right? Now, Peter wasn't even a slave. He was just a student of Jesus. And yet, Peter recognized how utterly inappropriate this was to actually stick his dirty feet out and let Jesus wash his feet when he was his rabbi. But the scenario that Jesus describes in this parable is far more extreme because these are slaves who don't expect anything from the master. And yet he seats them at his own dining table and he begins to serve them. Now, in verse 37, the implication is that by sitting them at the table, at his own table, and serving them, 
that in essence the service means he prepared a meal for them or he served them food. This actually has raised a lot of questions among Bible scholars because the question that they raise is, where did they get this food from? Where did the master get this food from that he's serving his slaves with? And they point out that there's no mention in the whole prep time about keeping the lamps burning and getting ready to answer the door when it knocks about actually preparing a meal. There's, there's no mention that the slaves prepared a meal. And there's no mention that the master prepared a meal. And yet, there it is, food ready to go at the dining table. So, some New Testament scholars have speculated that probably what Jesus may have meant, when he said the question is, where did this food come from? Well, the obvious answer was, from the wedding. From the wedding. And so, if you sort of put it together... It's, it's rather astounding, the picture that Jesus is painting. It looks something like this. This wealthy nobleman is partying with his friends at one of his friends' wedding. And it's an awesome reception. They're having a good time. But the master just can't enjoy himself because he keeps thinking about his slaves at home, okay? Which right there is, like, ridiculous, okay? I mean, it's like, what master does that? Oh, my, my heart just goes out to my slaves at home, you know? I'm just so worried if they ate tonight, you know? It's like, no master worries about that. And so he can't help himself, and he leaves the party early. And on his way out, he puts together a little to-go bag and brings this food home for his slaves. And he gets home and filled with love and affection for his faithful slaves, He sits them down at his own table. And then he takes out the food and he says, you guys eat. I want to serve you tonight. This is sort of a fuller picture of what Jesus is saying is going to happen on his return when he comes back for us. Saying in essence that that is who you and I are in this story. We are like lowly slaves who deserve nothing, and yet we receive the unmerited affection and love of the Father, the Master who cannot stop thinking about us. And all He wants to do is come back for us so that He could serve us a feast fit for a king. It's in light of this sacrificial and loving heart of the Master that we have to understand the difficult words that Jesus says that follows after the story. Because in verse 49 uh, to 51, Jesus will go on to say, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Jesus is painting a very dramatic picture of starting the world on fire. And the immediate question is, what does Jesus mean by this imagery when he says setting the world on fire? Well, New Testament scholars are in general agreement that the only thing that he could be talking about here is judgment. Judgment. Jesus is longing for this day of judgment when justice, the justice of God, will be brought to bear on this earth. Now, that's not a very pleasant image, is it? It's a picture of the entire world going up in flames because of the unbearable judgment of God upon a sinful world. I think the truth is we all like to hear the good news about God's love. But 
What the Bible tells us is you cannot fully understand the gospel message until you also understand something about the God that we worship as a God of justice. Because his love is only fully understandable in light of his justice. And the truth is this, I think. Because we are all made in the image of God, all of us have the sense of justice buried deep within our hearts, don't we? Don't we all long for a day when the wrong things will be made right? I mean, think about all the horrible atrocities that have been done throughout history. Don't you hope that one day these people will be held accountable for the things that they have done? I mean, when I just follow this news footage about what's happening with these uh, hostages of ISIS and these beheadings that are going on and these horrible things and these two Japanese men that have been caught in all this. And uh, it's just, there's something inside me that just, you know, there has to be justice for this kind of behavior. There has to be some way to make this right. I even think about the counseling that I've done over the years as a pastor, decades of counseling people, many of whom have suffered the abuse of other people, people who have done evil against them. And I'm just trying to pick up the pieces and trying to get them to a place where they can move on with their life. But sort of the unspoken part of those counseling sessions, even for me as the pastor is, that's really messed up. That was really messed up. And there's this sense, I think, in all of our hearts, like, so what about that? What about those things that were done to these people? And they have to live with the wreckage of that all of their life. But the truth is, for many of these evils that are done in our world, there is no justice. There is no court date. There is no prosecution. It's as if they've gotten away scot-free. And the victim is the one that has to live with the damage. You see, I think inside every one of us is this inherent hope for justice. That all the wrongs will be made right one day. All the evils will be laid bare and punishment will be meted out. But there's a problem with the justice that we tend to embrace. And it's that we tend to have justice on a double standard. Meaning, we want justice for all of the bad people out there, all the evil people, you know, all the Hitlers and the Pol Pots and the Stalins, the Jeffrey Dahlmers, all these ISIS people doing the beheadings. We want justice for them. But what about for the wrongdoing in our lives? What about the people we've hurt? What about our victims? When do they get their day in court? And I think the truth is, when it's applied to us, Either we don't feel like our wrongs merit any punishment, or even if we acknowledge that it does, we want mercy, don't we? We want forgiveness. Well, I want you to try to imagine it from God's perspective, seeing the world and all that he sees, and all the evil, and all the horrible abuse, and crimes, and murders, and terrorism, all of the rape and child abuse and all of the horrible things done in our world. And from those fiery eyes of God, the heart of God that says, one day 
Justice is coming. Justice is coming. And yet what is interesting is even as Jesus says that, what you realize is that he longs for something greater. Because even as he talks about the fire that is about to come to burn the world, right in the next breath, he talks about a baptism that he's about to endure. And when he talks about that baptism, he's talking about his crucifixion, the suffering that he's going to undergo to take the punishment of the world upon himself so that the world will not have to undergo the horrible justice of God that will be unbearable to everyone that has to stand under it. In other words, there is mercy available for those who will come and run to him and receive the mercy that he offers through the cross. I think passages this, like this are really disturbing because, you know, there's this sense of like, didn't Jesus come to bring peace? And if you actually look at the Bible passages, that's what it says Jesus will come to do. Speaking about the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Even his uncle, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he realized that his nephew was going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, he gave this prophecy. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 79, it says about Jesus, he said, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Peace. And so here is this great promise that Jesus would come as a man of peace. And yet at the same time, Jesus says, do you think I have come to bring peace? No, I've come to bring division among you. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, it's pretty much what we were going through in our Christmas sermons, right? About this idea of finding real peace. That the peace that Jesus came to give is not the peace that we think of. The peace that Jesus came to bring is not political peace. It's not peace as a tranquil state of mind that relieves all my anxieties. It's peace with God, which is our biggest problem, whether we realize it or not. Is that because of our sin, we have become enemies of God. And he came to reconcile that broken relationship with God. And he says that that is the true peace every person needs in your life. That is the peace that is going to rescue you from the coming fire of God's judgment. It is that peace that I came to bring to this earth. And he says when you know that peace, all the other peace that you seek in your life will be realized. But, but here is the caveat. Jesus says even as you align yourself with me, and as you choose to follow me as your Savior, it's not smooth sailing from there. It's not like the road is easy from this point forward. Because he says in the verses that follow, For from now on in one house there will be five divided, 
three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You see, there is a lot of people who say, even if they don't believe that Jesus was God, that at least he was a good moral teacher, sort of in the tradition of Buddha and all the other great moral teachers throughout human history. But if you really study the Bible, if you study the Gospels, what you realize is that Jesus doesn't really give us that option to simply label him a good moral teacher. Because his claims went far beyond teaching us an ethical code by which we ought to live our lives. He says things that only a lunatic would say if he's not God. And he says, listen, if you want to follow me, your love for me has to be greater than your love for your own family. Now, if you're not God, you are evil to say something like that to another person, aren't you? But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen. The relationship that you forge with me is not like any other relationship that you have. I am not just a friend, a buddy. I am not just a good teacher to have in your back pocket that will help you to figure out your way out of life's difficult problems. I am God. I am the Son of God. And if you choose to follow me, that allegiance has to be total. And that's going to cause some problems in your life. There are people that are going to compete for that allegiance so that even families will be divided because of me. Because my claim on your life is total and absolute. You see, when it comes to following Jesus, you can't do it in half measures. If you try, you lose everything. Jesus says, if you would come and follow me, you must come and die. And you must Surrender your life to me. Because it's only in doing that that you truly understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus and experience the power of a life transformed. It's all or nothing, Jesus says. And I think that's what every single one of us has to wrestle with. Do I just keep Jesus as a tag-along buddy Someone to sort of keep in moments of distress so I have someone to pray to when I have nowhere else to look? Or do I follow him like a slave follows a master? Like a person who has burned all his or her bridges and says there's no turning back. It's Christ and nothing else. Because it's only in that surrender that we truly discover the life that Christ promised. And this is not like following some tyrant who wants to make our life miserable. That's why I said it's so important that we see this teaching in the context of the teaching that he just gave. He's not there with a whip waiting to beat you. The picture is of a loving, affectionate, gracious, and merciful master who wants to give us good things. But it's just that we cannot receive those good things Unless we're willing to have the faith to surrender it all and say, take my life, it's yours. He closes with these words of warning to those who are surrounding him. When you see a cloud rising in the west and you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. 
And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? What Jesus is saying is, is this. I have shown you plenty of signs that I am who I say I am. You've seen the miracles. You've seen everything that I've done in your midst. And yet many of you, in fact, most of you, refuse to believe me. And he's saying, you look at the clouds and you say a rain is coming. But he's saying there's something so much more obvious right in front of your face. And yet most of you choose not to follow my teaching. And he says, in essence, what he's saying is there's this almost willful blindness and denial. Because the truth is, you don't want to follow me. The truth is, you don't want to surrender your life to me. You want your life to be your own. And so he's saying the signs are right there for you to see. If only you would look. But you choose not to see. You choose not to look. And the truth is, I think that's the decision that every one of us is faced with in our life. Christ says, look at the evidence. Look at what I've revealed to you. Look at what I've shown you in your life. Saying, I am real, I am there. And yet, ultimately, our choice not to follow him will often not be because we don't feel like he's given enough, enough evidence. It's because we want to be in control of our own lives. We want to do what we want to do. But what Christ is saying is, give your life to me. Surrender it to me because it's only in doing that that you actually will save your life. It says, until you can finally let go of your life, you're going to lose your life. In trying so hard to find your life in your own way, the most horrible aspect of that is you're going to end up losing it all. It's only if you entrust it to me and give your life to me that you're actually going to save it. Let's pray. As we uh, come into a time of prayer and personal reflection, I want to invite you to think about your life and what it means if you confess that you follow Jesus Christ. Um, I think the truth is for many of us, uh, we have uh, sort of been sitting on the fence, you know. And all this teaching about the second coming is really trying to call us to make a decision about where you will put your allegiance. And um, I think there's a very real danger of sort of keeping Jesus in our back pocket as sort of a convenient insurance plan. But Christ doesn't really give us that option to pull him out at our convenience and then to discard him when we don't really feel the need for him. He, his promises are breathtaking and his claims are great. But they're only ours by faith if we lay it all on the altar and surrender our lives to him. Christ doesn't give us the option to simply follow him as a good moral teacher. His claims are far too radical and extreme for that conclusion. As many other apologists have said, he's either who he claims to be or he's a megalomaniacal lunatic. He doesn't really give us a third option. And so Christ is warning us 
the storm of God's judgment is coming. All the atrocities, all the evil, all the sin in every generation. The day of reckoning is coming when this world will be consumed by the fire of God's judgment. And yet, Christ says, you don't have to experience that judgment because of what I've done for you. Instead, what can await you is a banquet that you don't deserve. A warm meal, an inviting table, not as slaves, but as dinner guests, as friends, because of what Christ did on our behalf. Because the master assumed the posture of the slave, we the slaves can become friends, friends of God. And so, My invitation to you, if I could right now, is to just reflect on what Christ means to you. Um, What would it mean for you to surrender your life to Him in totality? Uh, I don't think we can generate that just out of willpower. As I said in my New Year's message, uh, one of the themes that I want to embrace this year as a church is to grow in faith as a community of God's people. And I think all of us are at different stages in this faith journey. But wherever you may be, no matter how small your faith may feel at this time, I think God invites us to ask Him for greater faith. And saying, you know, the truth is, I do feel like I'm a fence-sitter, that uh, it would be a stretch for me to call you my master. Because I, I pretty much just follow you and my own convenience. I pick and choose the teachings that I want to embrace. But what Christ says is, if I... It's the richness of the promises that I give to you. Your surrender to me has to be total. Your life has to be laid on the altar. So can I just invite you to just spend a few moments in prayer and just maybe come before God and maybe offer that prayer to the Lord and say, I want my life to be laid on that altar. I want you to take it all, God. Or maybe what you could say is, even as I pray that, God, I know the weakness of my own heart, and I know how hard it is for me to really mean that. And so, God, help my unbelief. Give me the belief that I need to put my trust in you more. When I try to picture you, God, I don't see that picture in that parable of a loving, gracious, merciful master. That's not the picture of God that comes to mind. I have these very dysfunctional, really messed up pictures of you. Maybe for some of you it comes from your earthly parenting or maybe it comes from other bad experiences of abuse that you may have. But what Christ wants to do is give you an accurate picture of God as this loving, gracious, merciful Father so that out of that picture we will willingly give ourselves to Him. So would you just pray for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of prayer and response through these songs. And let's just give our hearts to God in that way. Let's pray.